first day, September 25th, 2014. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Polk Runyon, and tonight we present a discussion on the Orphic Hymns, which are the Western esoteric tradition's oldest liturgy. Now, these hymns to the planets, the gods and the goddesses, the stars, and all aspects of ancient Greek mythology were used by the Orphic sect before the Golden Age of Greece in the days of Pythagoras to guide the dead souls on their spiritual journey up through the celestial spheres and into the realm of the zodiac and beyond. This was a special and separate aspect of Greek mysticism, which had its influence on Pythagoras, the Gnostics, the Mithraites, and the Italian Renaissance Hermetics. Most recently, Christopher Warnock has included the hymns in his Planetary Magic book. Now, we will concentrate on the 18th century Thomas Taylor translation, which we use, and which Christopher Warnock also used, and read Robert Graves' poem combining a number of Orphic memorials into a connected instruction, which may have played some part in the Eleusinian mysteries. So if you want to know what that strange uh, stuff that they uh, sing to harp music accompaniment at the beginning of seasonals, then tune in and we'll take you back 3,000 years. Now, this is a subject near and dear to my heart because we have been using these 3,000-year-old Orphic hymns uh, for ever since, gosh, ever since 1973, and we started using them. And of course, we use them in all of our seasonal ceremonies. Uh, we always start off each seasonal ceremony with an appropriate Orphic hymn. And the Orphic hymn, of course, also we use them in our in our uh, fourth degree initiation where we ascend, which is also based on the the so-called Mithriatic ritual, which is from a little bit later time. The Mithriatic ritual is first century Alexandrian, and it says Mithriatic, but it actually it's it's somewhere between Gnostic and Hermetic and Mithriatic. And uh, so we use the Orphic hymns in, in conjunction with uh, the Mithriatic ritual to ascend the spears. And uh, so they're, they're really quite a fixture and have been ever since the Renaissance. Um, they were first uh, translated by the Western world out of uh, Greek into Latin by uh, Marsilio Ficino, and he loved them. And I'll read a little bit of his uh, letter to uh, to one of the Medici's, his, his Patrick, describing these hymns. And um, and then his his friend and, and uh, a fellow a magician, Pico de, de la Mirandola, also. Uh, you know, picked them up and and, and thought that they were quite uh, quite useful. Recommended their uh, using them for all planetary uh, invocations. They're um, they're somewhat like, they somewhat resemble the 
the North Sabaean uh, planetary invocations in Picatrix, and I think may, maybe they might have had some influence on on the Picatrix planetary invocations, which were probably written down sometime, you know, around uh, 700, 800 AD. Um, but the Orphic hymns predate all of these. They go back. They go back. A little after Homer, perhaps. Some people would say they're pre pre Homeric, but then actually no, they're probably in between in between Homer and Pythagoras. And let me explain before we get into this just exactly what the Orphic uh, theology is, or at least as much as we know about what it is, and and why it how it differs from regular Greek uh, mythology. And we shouldn't call Greek mythology regular because there's nothing regular about Greek mythology. But uh, it's uh, it differs from Homeric Greek mythology to a degree. Now, what we have here is a kind of a a hybrid a hybrid system in the sense that in Homeric Greek mythology, when you died you went into the underworld. And the underworld was not really a very, very nice place. Uh, You had, of course, you pay the ferryman, get on the river sticks, and we all know about that, you know, and get by the three-headed dog. And and, and, and there were some areas in the underworld that were nicer than others. In fact, uh, Dante's, Dante's, Version of hell is based on, on pretty much on uh, on Greek on the Greek idea of the underworld. Uh, so there were areas in in the under, underworld where things were not really so bad. You just kind of wandered around in a dim uh, kind of a twilight zone, and and, and um, it was sort of melancholy, but it wasn't really torturous. And then there were areas, of course, further on down where where people who weren't so nice went up that they did get uh, all of the all of the refinements of <laughs> of hell. But uh and then the Greeks also had a concept that a side concept that very virtuous people or very, very people who contributed to society and heroes and people like that could go to the Isles of the Blessed. Um, but not very many. They, they didn't hold that out for uh, very many people. But then they also they were also moving toward the idea of of placing heroes in the in the zodiac, as you know, up in the in the stars, as you know. Now, I'm not going to say that the Greeks in in Homer's time and all the way up to the Golden Age. That they they really didn't think that the underworld actually was the underworld because they did. I mean, there there are caves all over Greece that claim to be the entrance to the underworld. They 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 really did believe there was an underworld. But and from the Egyptians who they venerated, the Greeks venerated very much. They got this idea that uh, when the sun went down, set in the west that it went into the underworld. That was also an idea that the Babylonians had, too. That, so we began to get a, a sort of a concept that 
that the underworld was also the overworld. And I know this is a little kind of kind of hard to grasp, but 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 it was a, it, the mindset here was well the sun goes down to the underworld, so what we're looking at at night is actually the the underworld is the overworld, and there there was kind of that uh, that concept. But don't get me wrong. I mean, don't get don't, don't get the idea that the underworld that you just went down the cave and you automatically went up to the stars. It wasn't quite the way it was. But the Orphics. The Orphics were a special sect, and the, this special sect, according to several anthropologists who have done linguistic studies and they've done uh, archaeological studies, various, various studies um, have indicated that um, somebody... Uh, whether he was Apollo or the original Orpheus or whoever, they, somebody came down from Central Asia, and probably a Scythian. Uh, you know, I know uh, Peter Kingsley would like to think he was a Mongolian, but there weren't any Mongolians back then, so he's probably a Scythian. Came down around 500 B.C., and uh, whether he had any... Um, uh, dried amanita in his tote bag or not, I don't know. But but he came down from Central Asia, well, way up there in the Altai area, where you're close to the to the the pole, and the, and, and you can see this this revolving this this revolving phenomenon of the stars orbiting around the North Pole, and this was awesome to the uh, prehistoric shamans of the northern regions. They were really affected by this, and they they um, uh, conceived of a cosmology where where the souls went up the Milky Way up into the, the up by the North Star and and uh, met the ancestors and then came back down. In other words, a uh, what seems like a very sophisticated view, but it was based upon the idea of of being up there in the north and looking up at this uh, at this celestial phenomenon, which which was much more prevalent, but it's much more impressive and and uh, dynamic up there than it is down down toward the equator. Now, the key point on this uh, to, to remember is that this. This went all over the world. Uh, American Indians, who also had their origin in in, uh, in Siberia and Upper Central Asia, they have the same they they have the same idea. They, they and they, here in California, you know, you climb Mount Shasta and and when you and, and you go up on Mount Shasta and die and jump up on the Milky Way and off you go. You know, what I mean, so this this is a very 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 ancient prehistoric belief now. Whoever this was who came down, um, some people like to call him the original Apollo, and Apollo was very, very much associated with the Orphics. But he came down and 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 gave this concept uh, to the Greeks, and uh, this um, became uh, somewhere somehow associated with the with Orpheus. And Orpheus was considered to be the father of music. He was the, the, the great musician. 
Orpheus was so good with a lyre, and a lyre, of course, is a little kind of a, a two-sided harp, um, and uh, Orpheus was so so uh, talented with this this harp that he had, this this lyre, that supposedly the rocks would, when Orpheus would walk along playing his lyre, the rocks would jump up out of the ground and bounce along behind him, you know. So he, yeah, the rocks would follow him and the birds would follow him and and, and the snakes would follow him and everybody would follow him. Well, uh, so he was the original Pied Pied, Pied Harper or Pied, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, Orpheus was the inventor of beautiful music. Okay. Now, Orpheus had a wife who he dearly loved, Eurydice, and and Eurydice um, yeah, was off gathering, uh, picking grapes or blackberries or something or other, and and a satyr came and ran out of the thicket and tried to have his way with her, and she fought off the satyr, and in the process of fighting off the satyr, she stepped on a viper, and the viper bit her, and the satyr ran off, and uh, and and Eurydice died. And so Orpheus came upon her, and he was grieving and, and and just really miserable. And so Orpheus decides that he will go down to the underworld and see if he can charm Hades into letting him bring, bring Eurydice back with him. Well, anyway, he did. So he goes all the way down to the underworld, and he, and he plays his lyre, and he gets by... Charon, the boat of the boatman, and he plays his lyre, and, and the three-headed dog lies down and wags his tail, and Orpheus just goes right on in, into Hades, and Hades, you know, and, and he's really grumpy, and Hades, you know, says, what are you doing here? And Orpheus says, well, I want to get my wife back. I really think nobody gets out of here. And so he says, well, let me play a tune for you. So Hades says, go ahead. So he does, and Hades is just, He's, he's so moved that he's just crying, and Hades finally says, "Okay, he says you can you can uh, have your wife back, but here's the, there's a condition here, and the condition is that you you walk she'll walk behind you, and you walk all the way out, and you get all the way out into the outer world, out into the sunshine before you turn around and look back, because if we turn around and look back, she'll disappear, she'll will have her forever." So uh, Orpheus agrees with that. And so they, uh, Eurydice behind him, or at least he thinks she's behind him, he gets all the way up to where he can see the sunlight coming through the cave entrance, but he's not out of the cave yet. And he turns around, and there's Eurydice, and she fades out as he's looking, and that's the end of that. So anyway, so Orpheus is just really, really miserable about this. Now, this is the legend. Orpheus... Um, Eventually, he he charms uh, he, he charms so many people that that uh, he, he runs into trouble, and a bunch of a bunch of uh, uh, women are so overwhelmed by by his music in one thing or another they tear him to pieces. Then you figure that one out. But anyway, uh, that's the myth of Orpheus. But that doesn't have really an awful lot to do with the Orphics except that this idea of, of resurrection and the idea of music. Now, those two things uh, uh, come from the Orphic legend. Now, the Orphics were a, were a special sect that believed in a, 
and the ability. They were kind of Gnostic in the sense that they believed that if you if you knew the right formulas, you could navigate the underworld and the overworld. Because as far as they were concerned, the underworld was just the uh, the uh, the pathway to the to the overworld to the to the, the, the celestial spheres, and you would do that Central Asian thing where you would you know would start climbing the and, and up the spheres, which also influenced Gnosticism too, by the way. But so what you had with these people, they had their own little creation theology. They believed as far as good mysterious romantics would believe, that in the beginning there was the mother of night, and the mother of night was impregnated by the wind, and she gave birth to a great big silver egg, and the egg hatched, and out of it stepped Venus, or Yo, or the great god, and lo and behold, the universe was created. Now, the important thing about this is the Orphics actually did believe they were what we would call panentheists. They, they did believe in one great, great God. Sometimes they called him Zeus, but 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 they they preferred not to use the term Zeus because that gets Zeus is too personified. They they believed that that the great God was everywhere in everything, and that the other entities were just manifestations, differentiated manifestations of him. So you might say that they were that they were pretty close to being, um, well, like like Buddhists and maybe even Roman Catholics. <laughs> that says. But uh, the important thing about about the uh, way the Orphics believe is that they had they had the formulas, they had the music, they had the poems, they had the hymns that would get you out there and up through the spheres and past the guardians and past the gates and it would actually get you up to what we what we call heaven. Now this sect was so important and, and so important to the people who believed in it that they were buried with little gold little gold amulets that had just just maybe two or three sentences of one of these charms on on this these amulets. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these gold amulets and uh they've been shown in museums and everything and they've been translated. Um and Robert Graves, uh, being a indefatigable digger into things like this and he he uh collected as many transcriptions of these amulets as he could find. And so he tried to figure out what what from them he tried to figure out what the overall formula, what this, what the formula for the underworld, for the underworld and the overworld, what it was going to be. By the way, when I say underworld and overworld, there is, and I'm not going to state this authoritatively because I'm not an authority on the Eugenian mysteries, and I'll leave that to Joe Carson to to say yay or nay. But there are people who 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 think that the Orphics had an influence on the Eleusinian mysteries, and that some of these formulas uh, were also included in the Eleusinian mysteries. Now, I'm not, I know there are people who think that, and uh, but uh, Eleusinian mysteries, as we all know, are mysteries. They're mysteries. They're still mysteries. So we're not quite sure. But but certainly this, overworld, this, uh, this underworld overworld 
thing would fit into that very, very well. Now, with all of that said, uh, let's uh, let's talk about the, the, the hymns themselves and uh, get into it a little bit here. Uh, what I'm looking at here, sitting in my lap, is a very nice big hardback book that I've had from, oh gosh, knows how long I've had this. Let's this, this, this see what the copyright is. This is Thomas Taylor, The Platonist, Selected Writings. It's published by the Bollingen series, and that's the Jungian group, and it's edited by Kathleen Rain and uh, George Mills Harper, and uh, we were two very fine scholars, by the way. And uh, this this book, we've used this one for years. I have little tabs on all the various poems for the different rituals that we use them for. And uh, the um, this book was published in 1969. I don't know whether it's still available, but there is a, I want to warn you, there is a modern translation of the Orphic Hymns but please, if you're going to use the Orphic hymns in your rituals and all, please get the Thomas Taylor translation. And the reason for that is it rhymes. The new translation doesn't rhyme. And these hymns are intended to be sung. And, and we have a, a wonderful, one of our, one of our uh, senior ladies is, is, is a wonderful harpist. And she uses a little baby harp. And those are nice. You get them on Toscano. You get them pretty recently. Little baby harp, about the size of Morpheus's lyre. And she accompanies uh, the singer. We've had some operatic quality singers actually do these, uh, but but you don't have to. It, it, any anybody with a anybody. In fact, I'm even going to do one with my my not not ready for prime time voice, but I'll show you how they're how they're done. And uh, and you want to get. Like I say, if you're lucky enough to have a to have a, a resident harpist like we have, oh boy! Although this last time I tried doing it with a shrewdy box, and I <laughs> asked Sister Urania to, to to hold the, the harping for the communion, and uh, so I so I tried to accompany Merrick with a shrewdy box. I'm not I'm not so sure how well that turned out. Shrewdy boxes are good for a drone for an overtone chant or a Nokia or something like that. But I think the Orphic hymn is probably better better with something like Orpheus's Lyre. And you'll find, you'll, you know, I'll let you judge when we get into that, uh, what you think. But, um, so I'm looking at Thomas Taylor's book here, and I'm suggesting if you want to use these these hymns, then for heaven's sake, get the Thomas Taylor translation, because it rhymes. And and it's real easy to get it if you if you have Christopher Warnock's course, you've got his planetary hours. You've got the ones at least that you need for the planets. Now you may want you may want to get all of them so you can use them for different things besides the planets. But at least Christopher Warnock has the Thomas Taylor uh, version in his planetary magic. Okay, so um, now and before we get to um, before we get to actually. Uh, Actually, before I inflict my singing voice on you, which I'm sure you're looking forward to, uh, let's read. Uh, this is another book, by the way, I, I hardly recommend. It's in the Western Esoteric Masters series. It's called Marsilio Ficino, edited and introduced by Angelo Voss. And in here, uh, Ficino, 
in here, he uh, he introduces the. Um, I get this right in the beginning. Ah, here we go. Do Cosimo de Medici, Marsilio Pacino commends himself to Cosimo de Medici, Pater uh, Patre. In the older day, to relax my mind, and the, uh, with the grace of music, I took up my lyre and offered up a hymn of the divine Orpheus, which he dedicated to the cosmos, that is, the world. The meaning of the hymn, which I translated from Greek into Latin, is as follows. O heavens, creator of all things, unconquerable part of the cosmos of ancient and venerable origin, beginning and end of all things, O cosmos, Father, who illuminates the earth's sphere with its spherical movement and the whole of the blessed, turning in an ever-revolving motion, cosmos, heavenly and earthly guardian and custodian of all things, encircling the whole, holding in your breast the invincible necessity of nature, red-eyed, untamed, many-formed, diversifying the universe, all-powerful father of time, most excellent, blessed diamond, cosmos, hear our prayers and grant a quiet life to a pious youth. Now that's an Orphic hymn. This is what Orpheus says. I myself a few days ago was celebrating an Orphic ritual to the cosmos with the same hymn. Well, immediately my father brought me some letters in which the wise Cosimo de' Medici, most health-giving doctor in my life, said he would reflect on my studies, kindly provide for me and generously favor me with hospitality and piously welcome me into his sacred dwelling. And so it happened that not only your magnificence, but also the ancient prophecy of Orpheus evoked in me the most immense wonder. That's magic. Okay, so that's Marsilio Pacino. Now, of course, his, his um, Pico came along a little later. I, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I think that they, their lives, I think that Marsilio... Uh, uh, and Facino were both alive at the same time, but I think Facino was much younger. But uh, Pico was much younger. But Pico followed right along, and even though he was more cabalistically inclined than, than Facino, he followed right along and, 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 and thought that the Orphic hymns were excellent, excellent material. Now, let's um, delve into them, the, the Orphic hymns themselves. So, let's um, let's go to... Let's go to the sun. No, no, we'll start with the stars. We'll start with the stars here. And I'm gonna I'm gonna sing these the way and the way they should be done. At least I think they should be done here, as I have a tin here and I'm and I'm 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 really, as I say, not ready for prime time, but I don't have one of my more talented singers with me tonight, so you'll just have to put up with it. With holy voice I call the stars on high. Pure sacred lights and genie of the sky, celestial stars, the progeny of night, in whirling circles, beaming for your light. With and rays around the heavens ye throw, eternal fires the source of all below. With flames significant of fate ye shine, and aptly rule for men a path divine. In seven bright zones ye run with wandering flames, and heaven and earth frames. 
With course unwearied, pure and fiery bright, forever shining through the veil of night. Hail, twinkling, joyful, ever wakeful fires, propitious shine on all my just desires. These sacred rites regard with conscious rays and end our works devoted to your praise. Well, I'll give you an idea. So you see this, this goes well with the harp. Uh, it really goes well if you got if you got somebody with some talent to sing it. Um, now, now we have um, we have one of the sun, and the um, the Orphics were not what you would call they 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 were not sun worshippers, but in a way they were because they they realized that the sun was the you know the the um, the eternal light and all of the, the the light. But they they actually venerated all of the planets, and they and they saw the sun as as um, uh, as creative agents in, in the world. Okay, um, I read the footnote here that uh, Taylor has. According to the Orphic and Platonic philosophers, the sun is the same in the sensible as Apollo is in the intellectual and good in the intelligible, in the intelligible world. Hence, Proclus, in the Theology, in Plato, on page 29, from the occult unions subsisting between good, Apollo, and the sun, calls the sun the king of the universe. And it is well known that Jupiter is the demiurgos of the world, so that the sun, in perfect conformity to this theology, is called immortal. Jove. Jove, of course, is another word for Zeus. Mm-hmm. Okay. So with that, we shall attempt to... I wish I could get Sandria to sing the sun, but she won't do it. <laughs> All right. She has a good singing voice, actually. Better than mine, to tell you the truth. All right. Here, golden titan, who is eternal eye? With broad survey illumines all the sky. Self-born, unwearied in diffusing light, and to all eyes the mirror of delight. Lord of the seasons, with thy fiery car, and leaping courses beaming light from far. With thy right hand, the source of morning light, and with thy left, the father of the night. Agile and vigorous, memorable sun, fiery and bright around the heavens you run. For to the wicked, but the good man's kind. That's foe to the wicked. Foe to the wicked, but the good man's kind. O'er all his steps, propitious you preside. With various sounding golden lyre, tis thine to fill the world with harmony divine. Father of ages, guide of prosperous deeds, the world's commander, born by lucid steeds, immortal Jove, all-searching, bearing light, sources of existence pure and fiery bright, bearer of fruit, almighty Lord of years, agile and warm, whom every power reveres, 
Great eye of nature and the starry skies, doomed with immortal flames to set and rise, dispensing justice, lover of the stream, the world's great despot and all supreme, faithful defender, and the eye of right, of steeds the ruler, and of life light, with founding whip. For fiery steeds you guide, when in the car of day you glorious ride. Propitious on these mystic labors shine, and bless thy suppliants with a life divine. Mm, well, okay, what's the sun? Now you can see, you compare these, compare these uh, to to your. Uh, to the Sabean invocations in Picatrix, um, and uh, you know you 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 they are not as nowhere near as elegant as the Orphic hymns, but you can see where maybe uh, an influence had an influence. Actually, these are much 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 more uh, they're more transcendental. They're more they're more um, um, they're more. Uh, they're more theurgic. The the Sabean planetary invocations in Picatrix are definitely thaumaturgic. I mean, they are. They they're all. Uh, what can you do for me? You know. I mean, whereas uh, the Orphic hymns are reverent. They're really reverent. And and um, as I said, I, I you know you're going to go. I know some of you are going to go. Looking for Orphic hymns, don't settle for anything but the Thomas Taylor translation, because the, the modern version you just it just isn't going to it, it, they don't rhyme and they and they they're very difficult to um, very difficult to actually set the music. Now um, the the idea that you could use these in your uh, in your magical operations. As an invocation, and that's and you can use them with all of the. Oh, one thing I, I do want to point out, though, that, that the Orphic hymns, these Orphic hymns, are are very, 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 very old, and they're not in line with modern um, uh, correspondences. So, consequently, don't um, disregard the in, the incenses that they have there. I know that's kind of hard sometimes because the ins, they'll they'll mention sometimes they'll mention the incense in the in the poem. Uh, so you just kind of have to get by that. But but don't don't uh, don't use their incenses because uh, you know you're going to be you're going to be using modern correspondences and you know. Uh, the sun is frankincense, and, and, and that's not the way they have it here. I see. Thank God for the sun. Um, no, they actually, actually, they do fumigation from frankincense and mana for the sun. So that one, that one works. Um, and uh, that, I, I, as you were on that one, that one does work. But there are others that that that, that don't fit our modern correspondences. Uh, and uh, the. Um, We've actually we've got we got poems to the earth. We got poems to the mother of the gods. We've got we've got poems to uh, that. These these are usable for, for uh, all sorts of things. Now one here, um, this I'm looking at this one the one to Pluto here. Now um, this one to Pluto we use for 
for seven gates, when we go down, Astarte goes down to the underworld, that's like Ishtar's descent, to, uh, to resurrect Baal down the underworld. So we use the hymn for Pluto for that. And, um, and by the way, that's exactly the same poem we used in, in Pluto's cave I had Mount Shasta back in, in, uh, in 2006 when we, uh, when we filmed the, uh, Beyond Lemuria down in the cave. Um, and uh, we had Frederick Nanides uh, doing the Pluto uh, hymn. And that, uh, of course, is uh, um, just do a little bit of that. Pluto magnanimous, whose realms profound were fixed beneath the Burman solid ground. In Tartarian plains remote from sight, and wrapped forever in the depths of night, terrestrial Jove, thy sacred ear inclined, and please accept thy mystic sin divine. Earth keys to the illustrious king belong, its secret gates unlocking deep and strong. You know, this is a kind of a kind of a kind of a, kind of a scary thing. But anyway, um uh what I wanna discuss is before we get uh, leave on this one, is the idea that Robert Graves took from all of the you know, all of these different little memorials that uh little gold medallions. By the way, the Yeti had a, a whole collection of those uh, that they showed about uh, five years ago. Then. But Robert Graves got all of these little amulets that he could uh, get translations of. And he says, in part translated from Timphone Grande and Capogno Orphic Tablets. Well, that, that was a, a collection of, of all of these things. So he put them all together. And he um, and he uh, came up with this this uh, these instructions, and it's called instructions to the Orphic adept, and this is the idea of ascending the the spheres going around the zodiac, and uh, can in a way doing this in such a way that you will assure your rebirth, and also that you might remember past lives. So this is interesting. So here's Robert Graves' wrap up of the of the uh, the Orphic ascent. So soon as ever your maze spirit descends from daylight into darkness, man, remember what you have suffered here in Samothrace, what you've suffered, and after your passage through hell's seven floods, whose fumes of sulphur will have you have parched your throat. The halls of judgment shall loom up before you, a miracle of jasper and of onyx. And to the left hand there bubbles a black spring, overshadowed with a great white cypress. Avoid this spring, which is forgetfulness. Oh, all the common route rush down to drink. Avoid this spring. To the right hand there lies a secret pool, Alive with speckled trout and fish of gold, a hazel overshadows it. Opion, primeval serpent, straggling in the branches, darts out his tongue. This holy pool is fed by dripping water. Guardians stand before it. Run to this pool, the pool of memory. Run to this pool. 
Then will the guardians scrutinize you, saying, Who are you? What have, what have you to remember? And do not fear. Ophelon's flickering tongue. Go rather to the spring beneath the cypress. Flee from this pool. Then you shall answer, I am parched with thirst. Give me to drink. I am a child of earth, but of sky also. Come from Samothrace. Witness the glint of amber on my brow. Out of the pure I come, as you may see. I am also of your thrice-blessed kin, child of the threefold queen of Samothrace. Have made full quittance for my deeds of blood, have been by her invested in sea purple, and like a kid have fallen into milk. Give me to drink. Now I am parched with thirst. Give me to drink. But they will ask you yet, what of your feet? And you shall reply, my feet have borne me here, out of the weary wheel, the circling years, to that still spokeless wheel, Persephone, give me to drink. And then they will welcome you with fruit and flowers and lead you toward the ancient dripping hazel, crying, Brother of our immortal blood, drink and remember glorious Samothrace, and then you shall drink. And you shall drink deep of that refreshing draught to become lords of the uninitiated, twittering those souls, childless populace, to become heroes, knights upon swift horses, pronouncing oracles from tall white tombs by the nymphs tenpit. They, with honey water, shall pour libations to your serpent shapes. Then that you may drink. Okay. That brings up, of course, more mysteries than it, than it solves. But if you notice in there, uh, he's referring to the Zodiac, that still spokeless wheel, out of the weary wheel of the circle years. He's referring to Phoenicia, have been by her invested in sea purple, and Samothrace had a direct connection with Phoenicia. And uh, he's also referring to, in, uh, in a sense, referring to the river Leith. Uh, in order to understand this whole thing, there are two bits of mythology that you need to read. One of them is the Cave of the Nymphs in Homer, the Cave of the Nymphs in Homer, which is some some scholars consider that to be a key. And, of course, the other is is Macrobius's commentary on the Dream of Scipio. Now, the Dream of Scipio by itself is not going to get you any further than the Cave of the Nymphs, but Macrobius's commentary might help. Uh, this this is um, uh, quite, uh, quite profound, and and the uh, idea of the Orphix has had a tremendous influence. Their 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 concept of of going up through uh, through the um, well, actually, in their own way, doing the labors of Hercules in a sense, and. And then coming back down and being able to remember past lives, if uh, if, if you if you do the right thing when you get to the to the cauldron of becoming, uh, and of course for this you need to look up at the zodiac and find out where that is. Uh, all of this is is part and parcel of that vision of 
the circling stars around the pole tree, which in a way is kind of like Yggdrasil and may have had some influence on the whole idea of Yggdrasil, the tree. Uh, For this also I would suggest that you might want to read, and it's a big, it's a big long read, but it's worth it. Hamlet's Mill by by Anna and Van Decken came out back in about 1970, and that is that is the magisterial anthropological uh, thesis that establishes the original primal importance of this. Polar, this this polar myth of the stars and the Milky Way, and it's called Hamlet's Mill because uh, Hamlet was really not a Shakespeare. Hamlet was a character Shakespeare lifted from Dark Age mythology, not uh, and put in put into Renaissance into a Renaissance framework. And uh, I know all this sounds a a bit a bit a how shall I say, abstruse, cryptic. But this really is the genuine initiatic code of the Western esoteric tradition that we're talking about. This is this is uh this is the um how shall I put it? Uh, this is what you really, really uh are going back at least in the symbolic sense, you're 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 grasping for when you when you study magic in a higher in a higher form. And uh, I want to point out that that you'll find this you'll find Scipio's dream, and you'll find references to some of the things we've been talking about in the Collectania Hermetica that Westcott put together for Golden Dawn students to read, but. Mathers, uh, you know, got the Enochian bit in his teeth and ran with it, so this did not get directly into the Golden Dawn program where I think it should have. But at least Westcott does have have some of the some of some of what gets you in in this direction in the Collectania Hermetica. Now we've uh, we've done about as much with the Orphic hymns as we can do on in an hour. However, I want to leave you with the the thought that yes. No matter whether you're doing the OTA or you're doing whatever you're doing, whatever kind of magic you're doing, uh, the Orphic hymns, if you're doing planet, if you're invoking the planets, invoking the the god forms, and you're doing this, the Orphic hymns will serve you well. And uh, but we hardly recommend the Taylor translation. And next week we'll be into more of this. Ancient source material that we still use today. We may do. We may do something on the Chaldean oracles, which is another ancient scripture that we use. So until then, take care, be well, and good magic.